glad that you are with us this week as we are in week number two of our series, Not a Fan. Um, I'm going to ask if you would please get out your Bibles, turn them on, go with me to the book of Mark, the book of Mark, Matthew, Mark. We're going to be in Mark chapter 10 this morning. And before, before we get to our passage of Scripture, um, every single person in, uh, in this room, every person online um, has had a feeling at one time or another that something is missing. Do you guys ever experience that? Like you're about to leave on a vacation or you've pulled out of the driveway and you're like, did we pack this? Like, did we get underwear? Anybody? Okay. Or you're about to walk into work or a business meeting and you, you know that you have to make a presentation and you need to ensure that you have everything. And there's this moment of, did I forget that piece of paper? Did I forget that really cool line that was going to sell my pitch? Anybody? Or maybe, just maybe, you found yourself in a place where you are like, I'm going to diet. And then you start eating fat-free and no-carb and sugar-free, and there's something missing because it just tastes like cardboard. Yeah? Would you guys agree with that? There was something missing. The, the flavor, the, the goodness, this product is disgusting. That something is missing feeling, though, extends way far beyond the worry of, did I close the garage door? It extends way far beyond, did I forget my work bag? It extends way far beyond, this cheese does not taste like cheese. For many people, there's a deep longing, a sense that something is missing, a desperate desire, if you will, to find an answer to what's missing. For many churches, the contemporary term for that specific individual would be seeker, a person who's looking for answers, a person who has come most likely to church or to a church service. But in all reality, that term seeker that we tend to use in church circles today, that, that same person was even talked about in, in Bible times. That same person who comes to, to look for answers. They would be labeled as the seeker. And the guy that we're going to see in our text this morning is that very person. The thing about this individual, though, is he's respected in the community. He, he is a man who's responsible. He's a man who's even religious, a religious man. He, by all intents and purposes, would be the regular church attender, the one who goes to worship on a regular basis, week after week. You know, there are a lot of people in churches today who, despite claiming to be saved, still have a nagging feeling that something is missing. And what is it? They're trying to pinpoint it. Many people would say, it's a relationship with Jesus Christ that I crave, or they read about people's relationship with Christ and what God is doing in their life, and they wonder to themselves, why do I not have that? Why is that? 
There are a lot of people in church today. But the question is, how many of them are in Christ? Because just because you step foot into this building does not mean you're one of God's children. doesn't mean that. So how many of them are in Christ? We kicked off this series last week, not a fan. And there was a very clear challenge from Elijah to get off the fence. A very clear challenge for us to stop having one foot in the culture and one foot in church. It was very clear. Do you remember the question that Elijah asked the Israelites? How long will you limp between two opinions? How long? There was a challenge for them and for us. But for today, there's another step, another challenge that is placed before us, and we're going to see it in Scripture. And we are going to have to ask ourselves for the next several weeks of time some very hard questions, difficult questions. Only questions that you can answer for yourself. So today, the first question I want us to answer, and please don't answer out loud, do not incriminate yourself, but are you really saved? Are you really saved? I want you to think about that for a moment before we go any further. We're going to see that a follower of Jesus Christ is secure in their salvation. A follower of Jesus Christ is secure in their salvation. There are a lot of people sitting in buildings just like this each and every single week, and they're stuck in the rut of religion. We're going to see a man here in just a moment that is a perfect picture of the the average churchgoer today. The one going through the motions, maintaining an image before people, Yet, deep inside of their core, they know something is missing. Something is wrong. I want us to pick up in verse number 17 of Mark chapter 10. And it says, And he was setting out on his journey. A man ran up and knelt before him and asked, Good teacher. Don't forget that word, good. He says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except for God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness or lie, and do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, so this man says to Jesus, teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus looked at him, loved him, and said to him, You lack one thing. Go and sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, and he had great possessions. And this is God's word for us today. Let's pray. God, we come to you right now. In this place where we've come to worship you, to know your word, to grow in our understanding, and God, I ask right now that for those of us who lack wisdom, that you would give it. 
that we would know that we know that we know in this place that we have either given our life to you and we're following hard after you or God, we don't have a relationship and something would change today here. God, I pray for the fan to get off the fence today. I pray for the Holy Spirit to come and flood this place, sweep across it, bring conviction through your word today to the hearts of men. God, your word is sharp and it will pierce to the heart. And God, I pray your word would come crashing down upon us in this place this morning. In Jesus' name, I pray, amen and amen. In 2020, so a year ago last week, Barna Study Group, a Christian organization that does statistics on the culture and in church, released some overwhelmingly disappointing stats. A year ago, Barna released that half of all adults in America have prayed and subsequently believed that they're going to heaven. 50% of America, adults between the ages of 18 and death, have, have prayed and then subsequently just believed, because I said a prayer, I'm going to heaven. Yet, many rarely show up, if at all, to a church worship service on any regular basis. Many, if any at all, rarely read the Bible in any consecutive manner whatsoever. They believe that just because they prayed these 10 words, I'm going to heaven. Yet when they walk outside of a building like this, outside of their homes, their lifestyle shows nothing different than that of the culture. 50%. That's a lot of people in America. If salvation, now I'm going to mess with your theology this morning. If salvation has not changed you, it has not saved you. I'm going to say it again. If salvation has not changed you, it has not saved you. Balcony, it has not saved you if it has not changed you. Jesus talked over and over and over in his ministry about people just like that. The people who claim to know, quote unquote, know Jesus, but he never knew them. They claim salvation, but there is no change, no transformation in that person's life. But salvation without transformation is religion. Salvation without transformation is religion. In fact, Jesus said in his ministry, there would be people in the last day who would say, Lord, Lord, we prophesied in your name. We did works in your name. And he's going to say to them, depart from me, for I never knew you. Depart from me. The religious man, the religious woman, the religious teenager. And that is a scary thought, is it not? That is a very, nod your head, because that's a scary thought. To think, if statistics are true, and I believe them to be, there are people sitting in this room right now who could hear the words, depart from me for I never knew you. In this room, right here. People just like the guy in our text. Church people. 
religious people. Good people. People who seem to have all the right answers. Who think, this is, this is me, I'm, I'm a child of God. But yet they've never truly repented. They've never truly repented and they don't have any real relationship with Christ. Just like the guy in the text, the fan is looking for a solution. Looking for a solution to their problem, to their something's missing. They're seeking. But they don't really want the salvation that Jesus offers. They don't want to give up themselves. I want you to write this down, that there are a lot of people that like the idea of salvation, but most people reject the repentance that's required for it. They reject the repentance. We're going to talk about that word repentance a little bit later on today to help you fully understand what it means. You know, in the end, there are people that are just unwilling to repent. This guy in our text comes and he's lost and he comes straight to Jesus, the man who can save him. He's religious, but there's no relationship here, no repentance, no change in this man's life. There's something that remained missing when he walked away. It is way easier to sit in buildings just like this and think that we are saved. It's way easier to just sit and say, because I said a prayer, and because I'm here, and because I brought my Bible with me, and because I do good things, it's way easier to say that all of those things make me saved than it is to sit in this room and ask yourself, am I truly set free in Christ? Have I truly repented in my old self and turned away from myself and my sin and turned towards the only one that can give salvation, Jesus Christ? We as believers, as followers of Jesus Christ, need to ask ourselves hard questions. You should have people in your life that can ask you those same hard questions. Discipleship. We were called to evangelize and disciple. You need people in your life. If you don't have someone in your life, you're not living a biblical lifestyle. That's, and that's not me. That's God's word. Jesus himself said to evangelize and disciple. So if you don't have someone who's discipling you or you discipling someone else, you're not living out what Jesus commanded. This guy here never asked himself, am I really saved? This guy here said, have I, never said, have I really repented? Never asked, have I been redeemed? Never, ever, ever asked those questions. And the fan of Jesus Christ doesn't ask them either. They know something's missing. And for all of the negative things that we could say about this man in the text, there is something that we can start off with. I believe something that resonates with every single person in the room, and it's this, that a restless life 
leads to us looking for answers. A restless life will lead us to look for answers. Deep in this man's core, he knew something was wrong. And for all of the religious things that he had done, he knew it was something not right. Knew it. So what did he do? What did he do? Well, he went to the most spiritual and religious person he could think of, a rabbi. But in this case here, Jesus was a lot more than just a rabbi. He was the son of God. He was the son of God. But what does he do? I want you guys to see, because you cannot miss this. This is so crucial to the text. He comes to Jesus, and what does he say? But good teacher. Good teacher. What must I do to inherit the kingdom? How can I have eternal life? And so Jesus tells him you, the commandments, right? He, he says all of these things, and look what he does immediately in verse 20. The man turns back to Jesus, and now he just calls him teacher. He doesn't call him good teacher anymore. Well, what does that show us about the text? The text says the conversation didn't get very far, and Jesus proclaimed to be God. If Jesus was just quote-unquote good, he would have been no better than the next person. Jesus had to be God. That was the only way for the man to be saved. Only way. And the man misses it. He no longer calls him good teacher. He just calls him teacher. Ten seconds later, he missed the fact that he was standing before the holy God in the flesh. Now, we don't get to experience that. We do not get to experience walking alongside of Jesus' physical form here in this life. But you can experience the work of the Holy Spirit, who, according to God's word, is a triune part, is a part. So the very moment of salvation for us, we are indwelt with the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is given to us for many purposes. But the Holy Spirit never speaks or does anything that doesn't align with Scripture itself. And so we can experience Christ in this life because we, are have, we have the ability to have and receive the Holy Spirit. So though we may not be able to walk like this man did, we can still accept him as God. And the call is there for us today to accept him as God. Immediately, Jesus challenged the man. Why do you say I'm good? There is no one who is good except God. There's a challenge immediately when the man began to, spoke, uh, to speak to him. And from the text, you see that the man completely missed it, and he changed his tone in speaking to Jesus just by his verbiage alone. But if you go on in Scripture just a little bit further, you'll see this verse that comes onto the screen here in just a moment. It's Hebrews 11, chapter, or sorry, chapter 11, verse 6. And he says, Without faith, it's impossible to please him or please God. For he that comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Jesus was challenging the man to have faith that I am God. But he couldn't. He could not see it. We could look at this man, we could look at the fan who sits in church, and from our human perspective, we could say these words, that they are ready for salvation, that they are ready for it. But guess what? Jesus sees the heart of man. 
Jesus sees what we as a, as a human cannot see. But this guy, the fan in church today, wants the solution and not salvation. They want the solution and not salvation. And there's a danger in that when people come just to make a profession. We see so many churches today that have hundreds and hundreds of people coming up just to make a profession and then nothing goes anywhere with those people. They walk outside of the church building. They're not discipled. They don't come back. They don't live a lifestyle of being changed. Nothing at all. They walk right back into the same life that they had, drinking, smoking, pornography, addictions. To any, you, they walk outside of these buildings and churches do it just to rack up numbers to say, hey, look, we had 75 salvations in this place and that led to baptisms and then we don't do anything with them. Jesus did not come to make us feel better. Do you understand that? Do you know that Jesus did not come to make you feel better? Jesus came and died on the cross for your sins to save and rescue people from the wrath of God and to save and rescue our souls from hell. And he came to take over our life. He didn't come so that we could walk around in this place of puppies and rainbows and candy canes. That's not why he came. Do you, that, that, the, the messed up thing with churches in our culture is that's what's taught. That's nowhere found in Scripture. Your soul is way more important than how you feel here on this earth. And nine times out of ten, your feelings are messed up anyways, and they're not even based on truth. Jesus came to save your soul from hell and to eliminate the possibility of all of God's wrath being poured out on you for what you and I deserve. And just like the man in the text, there was a challenge to accept him as Lord and he is either the Lord over everything in your life or he's not your Lord at all. One of my favorite authors and theologians made this statement that I believe sums it up perfectly. C.S. Lewis said that we don't come to God as bad people trying to become good people. We come as rebels to lay down our arms. We were enemies of God until he rescued us, till we laid our life down for the sake of, of being saved. The fan of Jesus wants to somehow gain eternal life, but they fail to realize that eternal life is a gift and it cannot be gained. This is not, let me just collect another piece here in the book of religion. This is not come so that I can have something else to add to my collection of beautiful trophies. Eternal life is not gained. It's given to us by God through Jesus Christ. It's given. And in this life, 
if you are saved, if you are saved, you do not wait until your death to obtain eternal life. You're given eternal life here and now in this earth. Right here. Right now. The abundant life Jesus talked about, the abundant life was meant to be displayed here through righteous living. Right now. You do not wait for that salvation moment and when you're laying on your deathbed wondering to yourself, am I truly going to get to heaven when I die? Salvation happens right here on this earth. That was the way it was intended to be. And if you believe something else, I would love to speak with you after the service today. And I will take you to scripture to show you what Jesus meant. He was going to prepare a place for us so that where we are able to go where he is, but we can know now that we have that salvation. We don't have to wait. 1 John 5 tells us about the evidences of a Christian life and how they're lived out here and now. And those evidences do not wait to be played out until we get to heaven. Could you imagine if every person was awaiting salvation until you got there? Am I going to be there? How, how would people see a difference in church and in the, the capital C church if we didn't have the evidences of salvation? Nobody would. We would look just like the people out there who are doing the things that we're told not to do. The evidences. The ultimate example of eternal life is to be a life that's revolutionized. A life that, that is very clear, righteous life. Not a life of religion. Which is the second thing I need us to see in our passage today. Is that a religious life is no substitute for righteous living. A religious life is no substitute for righteous living. There is a deep-seated problem in this man here in the text and in many people in churches today. They came, they did not come seeking Jesus. They came to feel better about themselves. And when Jesus introduces himself to this man, the man's tone automatically shifted. It changed and he starts talking about how good of a guy he is. Immediately, I've done all those things since I was a child. You know anybody like that? Don't incriminate yourself. If you didn't raise your hand, it was probably you. I've done all of those things. I've done every single one of them since I was a child. He was trying to convince Jesus. Fans of Jesus try to convince Jesus that they're good. That they're good because they've kept all the rules. Because they've kept all the regulations. But how painfully obvious that something is still missing in this individual's life when it says that he walked away sorrowful. How painfully obvious. It's clear why he came and he wanted something to be changed deep down inside of him. And yet he missed it. I've done all of these things. I've been the religious man. And yet I still feel the way I do. Tell me, what do I need to do 
to have eternal life. What is it? Have you ever found yourself in that place where you know that there's things that are wrong in your life and you just want someone to tell you what they are just so you can fix it? Anybody? I've found myself there before. Like, what am I doing wrong? What is it? Why do I have this anger problem? Why do I have this pornography problem? Why do I, and, and you want someone to just be like, here's your 10-step program. Just follow this guide and you'll be well on your way. Right? Anybody? Right. What if I said over and over and over again, and there's no shortcuts to life change? No shortcuts. None. In our microwave mentality here in America, we want it to happen just because we ask God for it to happen. And yet we don't work in tandem with the Holy Spirit. We don't. And we want to say, God, just tell me what I need to do so I can do it. But guess what? It had nothing to do with you at all. That's exactly, this guy's just looking. He's like, I I'm good. The fan's like, I, I give. I, I go to church regularly. I mean, I helped the old lady get across the street so she didn't get hit by a car. I'm the good guy. I, I paid for the meal for the homeless guy. I'm the good guy. And he's looking for confirmation from Jesus, like, I'm going to get into heaven because I've done all these things. And that's what the fan does. The fan of Jesus Christ just wants affirmation that they're good enough to get into the heaven. That in the end, it'll all just work out for me. I just want confirmation, God. We have a tendency in churches when speaking on this topic to automatically run to John 3.16, right? So for God, so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him would not perish. They would have eternal life. More often than not, that scripture is not fully explained in churches. And the assumption is, just because I believe that there is a God, that all, all of a sudden I'm automatically in God's family. I want to read to you a verse, though, that's just a few verses after John 3.16. And it says, he, believe, he that believes on the Son has everlasting life, but he that believes not on the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Do you know that word, belief? There in the text means in exchange for. In exchange for. I'm exchanging myself, my humanness, for what God offers. For what God offers. There's, there's, an, there's an action that has recurred, or that has occurred. I have worked with the Holy Spirit. Do you know that, that, that the Holy Spirit is the one who convicts you unto salvation? That's the, that's the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. Do you guys nod your head because that's how, the, that, yep, that's the biblical theology of soteriology. So the, the work of salvation. So yes, yep, nod, yep, that's how salvation works. Yep, great. It says the man who does not exchange his life for what God has for him 
wrath abides on him. That's what that says. Just because I believe, listen, I believe that it's going to rain outside later. That doesn't mean any, that doesn't mean that salvation is going to come to me just because I believe it. You guys following what I'm saying? Like, I believe that my wife is going to cook dinner for me later. She may walk away and be like, I'm not cooking because I'm tired. You guys tracking with me? Yes. Just because we believe it doesn't mean that it's true. Just because we believe it doesn't mean it's going to come to you. You guys following? God's word says the man who exchanges has life, but the man who does not has wrath. Salvation, people, is not about making you feel better. It's about removing your condemnation before God. It's about removing your condemnation. That feeling that's called condemnation should lead us to conviction, and that conviction should lead us to confession. And the fan does not want to confess. The fan just wants the conviction and shuts down. What did we see in the passage last week when we talked about this? The conviction that came through the Holy Spirit caused them to take a step back. They were silent. They were not ready to give up themselves. The follower responds to the conviction of the Holy Spirit and confesses. The follower. And that is the one place that it all goes sideways for the fan. For the man in this text as well, they will not confess. They won't. They cannot get their head around the fact of who Jesus is and what Jesus says. In their minds, they're good, they're religious, but there's a disconnect on what it means. Religious acts. Religious acts are nice, but they mask the need for salvation. They mask the need for salvation. You can almost sense the confusion in the text from this man, this church-going man who knows all the rules, and in his mind, he should have a place in heaven. And he's like, what do I have left to do? What, what, what is it? Like, just let me do it. Why do I feel this way? I've been such a good guy for so long. I've done good deeds. He even had the argument that he was Jewish. He was a Jewish man. God's chosen people. This man sounds very much like the average American churchgoer. And it's unreal, the similarities. Unreal. I'm good. I do good things. I, I go to church most Sundays. I give money. I serve occasionally. I've got to be good with God, right? Just because I did those things? Surely, when I die, he's just going to let me into heaven. Surely. That mentality could not be more wrong. Could not be more wrong. Matthew chapter 7 tells us, and the verse is going to come onto the screen. It says, not everyone that says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that does the will of my Father, which is in heaven. He that does the will of my Father, which is in heaven. 
There's a key statement there, and do not miss it. It's the one that I repeated. He that does the will of the Father. Do you know the evidence of eternal life is an obedient life? The evidence of eternal life is an obedient life. Your religious deeds are never, ever going to cut it. Never in the eyes of God. You will never do the will of God until you are saved by the Son of God. That's how it works. We are not going to sit here one day and all of a sudden be able to be saved by religious acts. Why? Because the religious people cannot see that they have not been declared righteous. If you have not been saved by God, you have not been declared righteous by God. And if you have not been declared righteous by God, then you will receive the very wrath of God, just like it was talked about there in John chapter 3. The very wrath of God will abide on you. What a very scary place to be. But the truth is that only those who have truly repented gain eternal life. Salvation for us should be summed up in four words. I want you to write this down and never forget it. Think on it always. Salvation is summed up in these four words, Jesus in my place. Jesus in my place. Repentance must occur in the life of a sinner. Fans will not repent. They may say a prayer. They may even go to church or even do good, good deeds, but repent not so much. Which leads us to the last thing I need us to see in this passage of Scripture is that it's hard for a rich religious person to repent. And I don't mean money here. It's hard for the rich religious person to repent. I want you to look back at verse 21. And Jesus looked at him, loved him, and said, You lack one thing. Go and sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. He had great possessions. Jesus was pointing out the very problem of this man, and it was pridefulness. He's pointing out the pridefulness in this individual. How on earth could any person, sinner, any sinner believe that they had kept the entirety of the law well? It's not possible. No man can keep the law that was placed before. You know, Jews had to know 613 different laws. There's no way. There's, if he slipped up one time and lied, or he stole as a kid, or he pushed somebody over, or had a bad thought about somebody. Though He broke the law. There's no way. He's like, I'm good. I am good, Jesus. I have done all of these. But guess what? It was religious pride. That's the man that says, I'm holier than thou. I'm righteous just because I sat in church. That's this man. That's the fan of Jesus Christ. But then it says that he also had great possessions. Those are the two things that keep people from salvation. Pride and possessions. Pride and possessions. It's the very thing that we don't want to turn away from. 
the one who is ready to receive salvation has found themselves in a place where they know that they're living in disobedience to God. They know that they have violated the law of God and there's nothing they can do about it. They have no hope. That's the one that's ready for salvation. And then what do they do? But they completely throw themselves at the mercy of God and place their trust in his grace. That's the act, the moment of salvation, for the turning point in people's lives. I want you to write this down, that only those who have repented will respond in obedience. Only those who have repented will respond in obedience. The fan does not like what Jesus says. He's like, go sell your stuff. Now, before you, before you get on your high horse and say, so Jesus wants me to sell my house and just live as a homeless? No, that's not what he was saying. Jesus was telling this man, I believe Jesus is telling the people in the church, I believe Jesus is telling us today to get rid of your idols. Get rid of the things that you have placed before me. That's what he was saying to this man. He could not retain or obtain salvation here in this moment because he wouldn't get rid of the things that he had placed before God. So he's like, get rid of your idols. Get, get a, so far away from the things that you place in front of me that you don't look back, that you can't reach them. Listen, if you're an alcoholic, don't go to places that have alcohol. If you're a drug addict, stop being around people who use and abuse and sell drugs. If you have a pornography problem, freaking destroy your computer. Come on, people. To be one who lies, to stop being a liar, it's just not stop, stop telling lies. It's to stop lying and then speak the truth. If you keep having affairs on your spouse, or you're thinking about it, then get help. Get people in your life that will help you. If you have a problem with anger, get some help. We, as a body here in this church, should come to one and only one source for our answers. Right here. No, no amount of self-help book, no amount of secular psychology is going to give you answers for your problems. God's word will change your heart. Only if you allow it. But it starts with salvation. It starts with salvation. Jesus says to the man, when you sell your possessions, you will have treasure in heaven. You will have treasure in heaven. But then he says to follow me. There's an action step that occurs. Now that I'm a believer in Jesus Christ, I now have to follow him. Take up my cross. And look at the response of the man here in the text. It says that he was disheartened and went away sorrowful. He was disheartened. 
the same response as the fan. Sadness. Just sadness. This man is grieved, but not over his sin. He's grieved over his stuff. It's sad because he came running and broken before Jesus, and yet he turned his back in the end. He could not see it. He could not get beyond him, himself. He's stuck in this one single place. But I want you to know something. The word repentance in the Bible comes from the Greek word metanoia, meaning new mind. To repent means I have a new mind. Which is exactly why I spoke to it last week, and I'll say it again. It's exactly what Paul talked about in Romans 12, verses 1 and 2, about presenting our bodies as a living sacrifice that's presentable to God. Why? And it says that that is our spiritual worship. But then he goes on to say this, the very thing, do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Why? So that you know the perfect and acceptable goodwill of God. That's why he said that. There, there needs to be a new mind. The life of a believer should be a lifestyle of repentance. That's why David was called a man after God's own heart, because he knew what it meant to repent, to turn away from sin and self, and to turn towards God, because God is the only one that can give me a new mind. And if you're going to sit in churches today, if you're going to sit in church and say that I'm a follower of Jesus Christ, you better examine yourself like, like Paul tells the Corinthian church. We are the church. We are to examine ourselves with the word of God to show, to show our life to be proved worthy. He also said it to the, the church at Ephesus. We are to walk worthy of the call to which we have been called. He says it in Colossians chapter 3, put to death all of the earthly things that are in you and put on love, put on kindness, forbear one another in love. There's actions that have to occur in the life of a believer and it starts with repentance. Church, you need to know this morning, that repentance is more than just a one-time action. Repentance is more than just a single prayer. It is a life of continual confession and change. A life of continual confession and change. So I want to ask you something. I want to ask you a question. Are you truly saved? Have you truly repented turned away from yourself, turned away from your sin, and you've turned towards the life giver, the only one who can save you, the only one who can change balcony, are you truly saved? I can't answer that question for you. 
you have to answer it for yourself. Am I truly in a place right now where I have confessed? Have I agreed with God about my sin and I've called it what it is? Have I come to that place? Do I have a posture in my life of repentance? Am I serious about sanctification? Am I serious? Because the fan of of Jesus will walk out of this building, and if Christ were to return, do you really want to hear, depart from me? I don't know who you are. I'm not here to cast condemnation upon you. I'm not here to scare you to heaven. I'm not here to drag you kicking and screaming either. But the Holy Spirit's doing something in here. I can sense it. There's conviction in this building right now. And I don't mean some eerie, creepy, God is moving because truth is being spoken. And you have to ask yourself, am I saved? Am I ready to lay down my life? I'm going to ask everyone to bow their heads and close their eyes. You may be sitting in this room right now asking yourself that question, am I truly saved? How scary and how awful to think that we have repented, quote-unquote repented, only to find out that we lived a religious life and not a righteous one. Churches argue over the fact of once saved, always saved, when we should not even be arguing about that. We should be teaching our churches that once saved, we forever follow. Salvation happens in an instant, but it's lived out over the course of the rest of your life. And so I have a question for you this morning. Are you ready to give your life to Christ? Are you ready to finally give over your sin, yourself, and allow God to do an amazing work in you? You may be in this room right now not a believer of Jesus Christ. And you're like, there's something missing in my life and I don't know what it is. Guess what? It's that God-sized hole. And so I'm going to tell you right now, there's no special words that you pray. There's no 10 steps to being saved. You need to know that you know that you know that you're a sinner and there's nothing you can do. Balcony, there's nothing you can do to get to heaven apart from Christ. And you need to call out to him and recognize that you need a savior. Tell him that you believe that he came and lived a sinless life, that he died on the cross for your sins, and that he was buried and rose three days later. It says that when you believe in your heart and you confess with your mouth, you shall be saved. Romans 10 tells us that. So maybe that's you. 
cry out to God from right here. You, you, don't, you don't have to shout out. You don't have to stand up and give me your name. Your, your salvation is between you and the Lord. Maybe you're in here and you're like, I've been teetering the fence for far too long, but I know in my heart that if I died, I would go to heaven. Well, today's the day for you to get off the fence. Be secure in your salvation and start living the abundant life now in this, in this earth. Here in Ionia or Portland or Saranac or Muir, wherever it is that you live, you can start living like a believer here, right now. And for you, it's to seek God. Ask people to come alongside of you. Disciple me. I need someone to walk with me in this journey. If you're in here this morning and you have cried out to God, will you look at me? Nobody else is looking around. I just want you to look me in the eyes. I want to rejoice with you. Young and old, front to back, just look me in the eyes until I acknowledge you. If you have prayed for something, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. There are at least four people have looked me in the eyes, recognized I have prayed out, to, I've cried out for salvation. Now I'm going to challenge you to do something really, really hard. I don't want to embarrass you, but would you be willing to get out of your seat and come meet me down here? We want to pray with you. We want to place a Bible in your hand if you need. Would you just step out right now? No one's going to make funny. No one's looking. No one's looking. Just come right now. No one's looking. Can I get a little bit of very, very light music? Could you just come? If you've prayed for salvation, will you just come right now? Come to me.